Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest today is Miranda McPherson. Welcome, Miranda. Hi, Rick. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, thank you. Miranda is originally from Australia, and I had the chance to get to know you a little bit by listening to all of your YouTube videos and reading most of the articles on your site, and uh, there's lots of interesting stuff that we can talk about today. But as, as we usually do in these interviews, why don't you start, if you would, by just giving us a, an overview of your life in terms of it, you know, the spiritual dimension of it, how you first got interested in spirituality and uh, what stages you went through in the, sure. in the process of unfolding it. Well, that's a, a huge first place to begin, so I'll, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version okay. just so that we're kind of fairly brief and can get on to other things. But essentially, I, I, I always remembered as a child being interested in the deeper meaning of things. And I always intuited that there was a lot more to life than what was being talked about. So I think I had a natural spirituality. And if I look back with the knowledge that I have now, I can see that states of kind of non-dual, pure being, interconnectedness, unity were very available to me when I was very small. And I think, you know, like everyone, the process of, you know, developing a personality and getting conditioned by our society and parents and the things that are inevitably part of any human life, I lost contact with some of that joy and, and deep connection with the way of things. But I was always curious, and I didn't come from a religious family. My family were, you know, moral people, and they weren't a-religious, but it just wasn't the main thrust of my family. So we didn't go to church or anything like that. And I was always curious. So I remember when I was about seven years old, even younger, maybe it was six, kind of saying, I want to, can I go to church with the family across the street? And so I did one day. And I remember walking into the church. We got there early. And I was with my little friend and her mother and I remember sitting on the pews of the church and just naturally having this experience that was familiar to me but it was an experience of just profound love and I, I just knew that that was just the presence of God and it was utterly natural what was confusing to me as a child was then that the preacher came out and started doing his thing and I was completely confused because there was such a dissonance between this very natural experience that came upon me just by grace in a very simple direct way and what was then being talked about they really didn't compute so in my precocious mind I decided then and there that religion wasn't for me but yet I was always really fascinated by the stories of Jesus and I think in truth I was really touched by you know just the love and the spirit of that but of course you know that went on that went away and, and dulled itself as the process of becoming a, a adolescent kicked in but I remember at the time of 13 which was a very difficult time in my life I really fell through the cracks inside of myself. There were several things that were coalescing in my outer life at that time that had to do with difficulties within my family and difficulties being bullied at school and such things that, you know, are very common. But what happened in me was spiritually interesting because I think it happens to a lot of people in that really what was going on was that I, I just couldn't tolerate the lack of love and the unkindness and the harshness that was 
thought of as common and natural and just how it is, it really hurt me. But my response to it was to interject and go within myself because I was a very reserved kind of personality and um, I fell into a, a dark place that looked to the outer world like something close to depression but now from where I stand and from what I know and working with people it was a classic dark night of the soul but I was hospitalized for that experience I think just people didn't know what to do with me I wasn't medicated I was just in it but I was in an adult psychiatric unit at which, 13 at 13 wow. and that was a very important and powerful experience for me I wouldn't say I enjoyed it but looking back in a way it was such an incredible preparation for the work that I do with people today because I was really there you know in a place of brokenness myself amongst other people who were suffering from what is essentially disconnection from love and disconnection from our true nature only it was called psychosis depression, the effects of people who tried various things to cope with what they couldn't cope with. So I was sharing a ward in an, even a room with people who perhaps had tried to take their life or who were going cold turkey off a drug addiction and it was a pretty intense experience but it made me question and that's what was so powerful about it is that it really brought me back to questions that I think we all ask yourself when we're at the edge of our capacity to cope with life and it's obvious that the answers that are conventionally offered aren't really giving us the clarity to cope with the situation that we need. So, you know, suffering is a very powerful motivator for the spiritual path and it certainly was for me. But I was interested not just in my own suffering but like why is everyone suffering like this? It was obvious to me that even people who weren't in that psychiatric unit who seemed to be well, whatever that is, um, were also suffering and, um, and I didn't know how to cope with that. So I started to pray but if you remember I wasn't religious, you know, I hadn't really had a lot of religious conditioning so there wasn't a theistic sense of a, a God that had been really thrust upon me so I didn't really know what I was praying to but I prayed nevertheless and I was just praying you know for help but I really wanted just to get out of here get out of my experience and the help came really when I think through some kind of exhaustion you know of my ego state at that time and consciousness opened up really by grace to a ground of reality that I call boundless love. They're in the hospital still? Yeah, in the hospital. Ah. Um, and it was an experience of just infinite golden light and it felt like really being lifted above what had felt to me like the battlefield of human life and connected to the mains, you know, and in that taste I knew that this was what was real fundamentally. I knew that this was also what I was fundamentally, that this was what everyone was fundamentally and I knew that the real purpose of life is to remove the barriers 
to the awareness of this being my and everyone's moment-to-moment experience. So it was a very powerful experience that happened in the midst of a, a kind of a personal crisis at a very formative age, and it set me on the path. So I think, you know, what's important to say about that was it wasn't that I was therefore enlightened. <laughs> you know, I was still a teenager with all kinds of difficulties and problems. and But the, the effect of that inner awakening, which was really the first of a series of very deep, you know, spontaneous mystical experiences, set me on the path, it gave me the orientation that I needed about what I wanted to explore in life. So it was from that point forward that I began to read and study whatever I could get my hands on that was somehow speaking of this mystical truth of existence and of what we really are. And so what do, I found... Do you agree with the sentiment expressed in the Gita and other sources that we come into this life at a certain level of spiritual evolution and we may have actually you know made a lot of progress in previous lives and and if so then when we come in we naturally kind of pick up where we left off it absolutely makes sense to me yeah I don't really see any explanation other than that for my own journey and for the journey of many people who I work with it seems that yeah we come into this life and we've have a certain degree of both realization and also lack of realization, you know, things, places where our consciousness is kind of bound up in streams of ego and habits of suffering and patterns, and that too needs to be worked out. And together, we would call that our karma. Um, so, yeah, I definitely see that. And I, I very much see that incident that I've just named around what happened to me when I was 13 was a very effective way of getting somebody to just focus their attention and get on with it more quickly than I otherwise would have. Another thing I find interesting in your story is that experience seemed to happen in response to a supplication or a prayer that you had made. I kind of see that a lot. My perspective on things is that we live in a very intelligent universe and there's a lot of intelligence going on helping to orchestrate things that we may not be aware of. And when we're ripe, if we're sincere and earnest and there's actually a, a focused desire for awakening, somehow the, the universe or whoever's running it <laughs> responds to that or is very likely to respond to that uh, as happening I agree. in your case. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's something about it's a dance between the true desire of a soul and the boundless intelligence, whether we want to call that God or you know, the mystery or by some other name, it does seem like there's an interaction and that there is a choice on behalf of us to, you know, what is it that we really want? Do we want just to be comfortable? Do we want to just numb our pain? Or is there some part of us that actually is trying to do something? So that's always very curious to me about mm -hmm. what the soul is really up to in any passage that we might be going through as human beings. But you asked me to kind of give a, a plot in history, so that was the very beginning. Okay. Put me on the path, I started to study, and, and actually where I began my study was in uh, the Vedas. I, I got hold of the Bhagavad Gita, you just mentioned that, and uh, Ramakrishna and Vivekananda and Yogananda, some of these great um, sages of India were 
the people that I was reading and was very moved by, particularly Ramakrishna and his teachings on the Divine Mother, I think it awakened in me the natural bhakta that I am. And of course I'd had that awakening and it was full of love, which interestingly also was what I had felt disconnected from. So there was something that my soul was working with that was very much about love and divine love in particular, divine and human love. So, you know, this got me got me engaged. And of course, as we all know, those of you who are on the path, you know, one thing leads to another. And uh, you're speaking, Rick, about the intelligence of the universe. And yes, this is profound intelligence that interacts with our soul, that guides us towards what it is that we truly need to help us thrive. So for me, there was something that I always knew, which was that the truth or God or ultimate reality cannot be contained by any one belief system or any one theology. So there was something interesting I noticed that I went to study in my late teens, through my teens, studied yoga, studied meditation, lots of different kinds of meditation, lots of different kinds of transformational methodologies. At that time, breath work was really big. I did a lot of rebirthing and holotropic breath work and things like that that was very useful because alongside the soulful spiritual development I had a lot of wounds from my childhood experience that I needed to work through and it was very obvious as a young adult that they needed to be worked through they were coming out in my behavior and interactions with people and relationships and so forth so I was always awake to the fact that the spiritual awakening and the psychological unpacking were not two things that they had to happen together as part of one gestalt and I was very very on fire with the desire to work through and release and transform the places that I knew were causing me to act out in fearful and painful and egoic ways so I did a lot of different trainings and study and and I had the great fortune of meeting some really wonderful teachers. They weren't necessarily big name teachers. They were people who were just very deep souls within their tradition who knew how to impart to me practices and teachings and um, I worked with a Zen master for a while and that was tremendous and what I learned did some practice with a Sufi teacher and I had a long time of study as a teenager with a really wonderful yoga and pranayama teacher before yoga was popular and trendy in every gymnasium and I studied for you know many years the teachings of the Course in Miracles which became a real mainstay in my practice that particular teaching was very powerful and important to me but I also had the good fortune of uh, coming across something called interfaith and um, interfaith ministry. Hmm. I went through seminary training in New York City even while I was living in England I would travel over there every month to do the training and was ordained as an interfaith minister spiritual counselor when I was 26 and asked by my teacher to begin a seminary, an interfaith seminary in England which I firstly said no to but eventually saw that that was really needed and a beautiful thing to offer. So I did and I, when I was 26 I founded an interfaith seminary, the very first non 
traditional seminary in Europe um, that's still a thriving community even though I'm not leading it anymore. So I spent 10 years crafting and honing and delivering a program of deep spiritual transformation for people of all spiritual traditions and none, essentially to explore who are we, what is life, and how do we serve and minister in the what I called the unchurched people. It seemed to me, and research proved this in the census in the UK back in um, 2000, showed that the vast majority of people that were surveyed, I think it was something like 65%, put themselves in the category of spiritual but not religious, which is fascinating to me. So really I was training ministers and spiritual counselors, walking them through a very profound training to go within and use the template of the great practices and the core teachings on transformation that all of the world's mystical traditions offer as a way to um, grapple with the core questions of being human and to be able to serve other people, to do weddings, funerals, blessings, ministry um, from that perspective. So that's what I was doing for 10 years. I think after about eight years I started to feel like, started to get guidance in my meditation. Everything you've been doing up until now has been the warm-up for what you're really here for. And I, I felt that, I always felt that. But if I'd said that out loud to somebody, they would have said, don't be ridiculous, Miranda. Because it might have looked to the outside world that what I was doing with the Interfaith Seminary was really, you know, my life's work, and I knew it, it wasn't. So I went on retreat to India back in 2005, and I'd been to India and spent time on pilgrimage and in ashrams, in various different ashrams in India over the years, and always loved it because really my spiritual root, you know, grew out of that tradition. It's where I began to study as a teen. And I wasn't expecting anything particular to happen. I really just wanted a place to go and be quiet and silent for a while. But as it shows that usually when you're not expecting the big opening, that's when they happen. So I was in southern India, uh, up a sacred mountain, Mount Arunachala, in a tiny temple town in Tamil Nadu, South India, as part of the Ashrama. Everyone who's listening to this has heard of Tiruvannamalai. All right, great. <laughs> I met, wait, they have now, because all of a yeah. sudden, hugely popular, but it wasn't when I started going. Right. It was really only people who were devotees of Ramana Maharshi. I wasn't a devotee at that time, but I had great respect for Ramana as one of the, the greatest and purest sages that India has really given us. So there I was in one of the caves that was his home prior to the big ashram being built. And I was just sitting quietly in meditation. And I had been a, a serious meditator for 20 years prior to this. And um, But something happened in that cave that was new for me spiritually. My consciousness just opened in a way where I, the usual sense of I, disappeared. And different to the experience at 13, which was full of light and boundless love, this was another dimension of reality that w was more black, actually. It was more like no thing, no one, no self. And I heard inwardly the transmission which said, be nothing, do nothing, get nothing, become nothing. 
seek for nothing, relinquish nothing, be as you are, rest in God. And it was just an entry into no thing, no one, no self, no God, but it wasn't a deficient, empty. It wasn't a bad, painful, dry, empty. It was just pure, infinite being. And the peace of that state was beyond anything I could possibly put into words. Was there still awareness of anything else, the body, the cave, outside sounds, or was it just complete inward absorption? Complete inward absorption. Mm -hmm. And then, then there was a sense of body, cave, sounds that came after that. I don't know how long, but there was no, there was just no problem with forms, with sounds. That was the most interesting thing about the state was there was no problem with anything. Everything was just absolutely fine, absolutely beautiful even. Everything was just as it was. I was in that state of no judgment, no commentary for about three weeks. Incredible peace. I often regard these deep states when they come about as teachers. So that state taught me a lot. So I remember when the shift happened from that state to more ordinary awareness. I happened to be teaching a class at the time. The shift felt like a a kind of a very dense, crunching, contracting feeling. But the same voice that had spoken in inside of my consciousness said, now integrate it. And my heart said yes, because I knew and had enough spiritual training to know that all states come and go, even very expanded, enlightened states, all states come and go. It's not really about the state. Enlightenment isn't a particular state, because enlightenment is completely free and therefore it can include all states. So I knew that for an experience like this to have lasting value, it would need to be integrated. And that the integration process is um, usually takes quite a bit of time. But what happened after that was very powerful. I went through, um, without trying to make changes in my life, within six months, every single structure, bar none, that had held up my known identity, the identity that I had built, um, started to come apart. My marriage of 13 years started to come apart. And the whole work that I'd done with the interface seminar, it was obvious that I'd done, that that was, it was done. What I was there to do was done. Everything was done. It felt like I had died. And I remember one night, it was having a moment of terror, you know, because I could feel everything rumbling, everything. I won't do the listeners a disservice of saying that I was totally at peace with that all the time. There were moments of complete acceptance and peace with that, but there were also, you know, very human moments of shaking and quaking and terror, at the, the absolute lack of control that happens, you know, and... Uh, I'd wake up in the middle of the night, pretty much every night, and couldn't sleep. So I would go to meditate. And in the middle of the night on meditation, I was praying again, saying, help me understand what this is for. 
so I can get on board with it, so I can cooperate with the flow of what's happening here. Because I could feel that what was happening was way bigger than my own mind or my own ego. And this again, same voice, <laughs> spoke in the cave, spoke back, and I was journaling this. And so it asked me questions. And the questions were, who are you without? And if you were to imagine, if you were asked, who are you without? And then you were shown every single attachment that your ego had for anything, anything that was propping your ego awareness up completely. I was asked my equivalent of who are you without? And you know, it was who are you without your husband? Who are you without your home? Who are you without your community? Who are you without your role as teacher? Who are you without your social standing? Who are you without your friends? Who are you without a country? And I mean, it went on and on. But the last who are you without was who are you without Miranda? And as I was writing my the M of my name, the pen ran out. <laughs> <laughs> and it was such a powerful moment because I felt this, whoa, like as if I was standing on the edge of the void being asked to voluntarily drop in. And of course, from the ego's perspective, when we're standing on the edge, you know, going towards the void feels like death feels like terror, feels like no control, which it is to the ego. And so it feels frightening, but when you actually let go, when you actually relax the the trying or the, you just when you really just let go and you're into it, it's not what you think. It's a bit like be nothing, do nothing, get nothing. It's not deprivation. It's relaxation of all the things that actually have been occluding the fulfillment of what it is that we truly want and what we truly are. Only we didn't know that the thing that was in the way was us. In the first of your articles, which I read, <clears throat> it was entitled Humility, the article. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of the points you made were relevant to what you're saying right now. You said one of the things was not insisting that things happen any particular way. Right. Um, you talked a bit about the you know, beginner's mind and welcoming the unknown, also that it's a beneficent universe and that everything is ultimately for our benefit. Right. And I suppose if we could take a, an example, you know, if, if we need to have surgery, then if we don't lie still, the surgeon can't operate. You know, we have to cooperate mm -hmm. and, in a sense, surrender to, you know, this, in the case of surgery, to this person who has our best interest in mind, even though it might be a little painful what he's going to do, but we have to surrender to it. So, right. you know, this seems to be kind of what you were doing at this stage. Yeah, so, you know, just to kind of shift this a little bit from the autobiographical to what I'm actually sharing and teaching with people from this experience, because everything that I, I offer as a teacher is really coming out of both years of, of deep study and working with people but very much direct experience, my own direct experience. And so a big part of what I learned going through all of this, going through a classic kind of uh, threshold of awakening into a new juncture of pure being, what people don't really talk about is that they talk about the spiritual glory as though you have this big spiritual orgasm and that's it. And I don't believe that that's accurate. Because for every opening you have, if you're going to actually live it, it needs to be integrated through the psyche, through the body, through the nervous system, and through right down into the way you walk down the street. And so that 
usually involves a dismantling process of existing ego structures and they rear their head after the awakening and then they have to be worked through deep you know layers of surrender and disidentification need to happen and that's not an intellectual exercise that really invites us to a deeper engagement and it requires certain qualities so I'm I, I noticed in the process of my own integration that I had to learn to strengthen and deepen certain qualities that if we look at the great mystical traditions they've shown up time and time again as the virtues so you're talking about the beneficent universe well we have to learn to trust if if what's required of us again and again and again is surrender which is really what it comes down to will you surrender and surrender isn't a thing that can be done is the one who is trying to surrender is the one who's in the way so in a way I like to use the word and a big part of my teachings emphasizes of being undefended undefended presence being undefended with reality however that's manifesting that requires tremendous amount of trust and trust is what gives us the courage to actually allow ourselves to be penetrated by a grace deeper than our mind allow God or reality to unfold us into the next dimension of what we really are and trust is a, a virtue that we cultivate and that we can cultivate through where we choose to put our attention so for example whenever we're taking a step into the unknown which is going to feel to the ego like the void the, the end of what we know we have to trust in our own soul we have to trust that there's an intelligence deeper than our mind we have to also trust that somehow the force of reality itself is beneficent because if we can't accept that we won't open we can practice and meditate and pray all we like but if we can't actually trust sufficiently that there's a beneficent force underlying everything we can open to allow that to go to work on us take us deeper and yes I wrote that article on humility because humility is another of the virtues that we need to really help pop the inherent arrogance that comes with our egos that are always oriented towards trying to control life humility is a very very important one that helps us open into the unknown and not contract in the unknown to actually relax and to to allow the space you mentioned uh, you know the idea that after an awakening there has to be an integration and that there are sort of layer upon layer upon layer of conditioning that has to be unwound mm -hmm. um, and now you're talking about you know being willing to surrender and and the humility needed to do that in order for this unwinding to take place and to be defenseless I think you said the turtle needs its shell you know and our body needs its skin so there are certain natural defenses that are built in mm -hmm. I assume I see what you say about this that a person couldn't just become 100 percent defenseless suddenly and that it wouldn't actually be advantageous for them to do so that there has to be a sort of a an incremental maybe simultaneous strengthening and dropping of defenses yes. so because if there were a complete dropping of defenses with no strengthening then we would really be vulnerable well, that, in, a, in a negative way. 
you're absolutely right. That's usually when people go into spiritual crisis. I see a lot of people these days who do ayahuasca or you know serious uh, medicines like that that can have their value, but one of the dangers involved is that they can dissolve the ego before a person's really ready, and then they usually have a very difficult time after that because to really experience you're not who you think you are, you don't even exist in the way it can really bring up a lot of fear. And then what comes into play is difficulty in functioning, and that's why often, I think historically, deep spiritual awakening has happened in monastic settings where there's a lot of support and where people aren't having to function. But if you look at what most people on the path today are doing, you know, most people I work with are not living in monasteries, they're raising kids, they're running businesses, they're living a life in the world. And so it is very important that they approach the awakening path not only with clear orientation about what the how is, what's really involved, but also with some support. And that's really part of what I've come to from my own journey and, and what I've seen. I saw that for me to really land the realization of be as you are, rest in God, to really even understand what that means. And if we come back to be nothing, do nothing, get nothing, become nothing, seek for nothing, relinquish nothing, be as you are, rest in God, I see that that's actually a practice. That is the how. That's a practice I call of undefended presence, being absolutely here and absolutely undefended to see what's really here and who's really here. But before you can really see what's here and who's here, you have to let the learned identities and habits, the trying, the getting, that's all coming out of that ego's sense of disconnection and then approaching everything, including spiritual practice, to try to get a particular state, to try to become someone more awakened, to try to relinquish the personality flaws and and all of that's in the way. So pretty much all of our ego efforts is what's actually blocking the deeper direct realization of what inherently is that's actually very immediate. So I'm really interested in people knowing and tasting what they are, but I'm very clear that the process is what all of the great spiritual teachings have really come down to in their essence, which is be still. Be still and know. So how does a person do that? I myself have had a meditation practice for many decades, and so I feel like I have a methodology for being still. But uh, if a person doesn't have that, is that is that something you would advocate that they do? Or well, what, I do. what does the average busy mother with three kids, yeah, you know, doing sure. this and that, how, how, yeah. how can they be still? Well, I teach uh, the three aspects to what I offer people mm-hmm. that work together. Holistic self-inquiry meditation and devotion and embodiment practices. Those are the four elements of my teaching, of my approach. Can we spend so, a couple of minutes on each one? We can, absolutely. But I want to, before I do that, sure. come back to saying, when I was saying be nothing, do nothing, get nothing, that is the how. Everything I'm doing with people is just be here in this moment, whatever your experience is, and see if you can relax. You're trying to do something about it, you're trying to get something different than what's here. You're trying to seek for something other than this. 
you're trying to relinquish what you think is in the way of what you think should be happening. You really have a look at be nothing, do nothing, get nothing. You see the formulas right there. And that doesn't mean, does it, that you're not going to have motivations and set goals and, you know, maybe go no. for a PhD or whatever no. inspires not. you. It's, it's, no, it's not. But it's really what it's saying is relax the ego agenda first and be as you are, just here, just this. Rest in God. Rest in God doesn't necessarily mean meditation because to, we actually already are resting in God if you really want the truth. But to really let awareness rest in the totality of being is a very simple and direct invitation. And it's an invitation that's every moment. So essentially it's saying, just rest, just stop, just be for a moment. Now, that's really the fundamental beginning of holistic self-inquiry, which is the primary offering, the primary engine of what I'm teaching it's very practical, and it begins with what's actually here. Just seeing what's here, feeling what's here, inquiring with the whole of our being, not just inquiring as a mental construct, which is usually just thinking, it's not inquiry, but just resting in the present, being undefended with what is, so that there's a settling of the surface activity from which we can start to inquire more deeply what's really here and who's really here. However, I want to go back to something. We were talking earlier about the virtues that are needed in order for people to really genuinely dive or drop from the ego shell of their being to the deeper dimensions. And for people to really genuinely do that without going into unbalanced states or without becoming derailed and unable to function, you need a support structure. So that's why I have a teaching that I would I begin with people before I teach self-inquiry. And that is, you know, the virtues, cultivating the virtues. Trust is the first pillar. Love of the truth is the next pillar. Curiosity is the third. Non-attack is the fourth. Humility is the fifth. Willingness is the sixth. Patience is the seventh. These are virtues that where I would start with you know, ordinary people, I would say, take a look at these virtues. And I also have a whole teaching on what blocks these virtues, what are the issues that come up around these virtues. For example, trust usually brings up our infant memories because usually our pathways around is this a safe place or not, am I loved and held or not, is things that, decisions and beliefs we were constructing when we were infants. So it has a lot to do with our very early experience of life and how held we felt or not. So some people need help and there are various practices I share that actually can help work through those difficulties and open up that felt sense of that I'm held, that, it's a, that there's loving goodness here that I can relax and trust in. Love of the truth, that's where the devotion comes in because love of the truth is true devotion. It's devotion without an object. So I share in you know all of my classes and groups and retreats, we chant a lot, we pray a lot to feel our way into that deep heart and its true desire. So the true desire isn't desire for I want a bigger car or I want a, a better husband. True desire is that 
is the deep yearning in the heart itself that's like a flame that really actually is a very powerful and passionate love for existence, for the source of our own being. And the deeper and the more connected we are, it gives us the strength that we need on the path to be dedicated, to go towards the things that might be difficult for us that we need to address, to not run away or collapse in the face of obstacles. So we need that robustness, otherwise we will collapse in junctures of the path where we are, we're at the end of what we know. You know, we need to not collapse, not fall into a puddle. Open is not, to be undefended is not to be collapsed, there's a difference. So then curiosity, I'm, you know, going through the virtues, there's a lot I could say here. Oh, they're beautiful. And just, just hearing you read the list, it was like, ah, 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 you know, each one. Right. To... So if you visualize these pillars as like standing stones that create a true holding around your being, what we're trying to do with these pillars is create a holding that gives us more depth, more maturity, more substance, true ground so that the ways that our ego has learned to try to create a sense of holding for itself can actually dissolve and we're not going to go into some unbalanced state. This I've seen and the more I work with people the more important I see this is and it's why I say that you know my approach to awakening is I think inherently feminine because I see how important it is that we have good support not just and I don't mean support in terms of just other people, although that's very helpful, but the, the, the true support within our own being is there. And then we can really dive, with, we can, using curiosity, we can really explore, wow, what is this like beyond what I know? Who am I really? I have no idea. And we can be with questions about ourself, about our own difficulties, about the nature of reality, even if we don't know the answers or we don't have the first clue about the answers. We can feel our way into the open questions themselves. And then curiosity makes the whole process actually very joyful. Just notice that when we're curious, we feel very alive, we feel very turned on, we feel excited, you know, we feel motivated, we feel um, interested. And that's a really important quality that we need, and it produces open-mindedness. So it brings me back to what Jesus said in one of the parables, you know, be ye as little children. And notice how little children go through a phase in their development where they're insanely curious about everything. You know, they'll say, why is the sky blue? You know, and the adults can't give them a real answer. Or, you know, they just ask why, everything, and they're curious. And of course, we know children learn, you know, language, they, they learn music, they learn things at a rate that's almost impossible for an adult because they're open-minded. They're not greeting each moment with preconceived, fixed ideas about the way things are. And so that's really important that we don't just hold on to our fixed ideas. And I see a lot of people who have you know, done a lot of practice and 
you know, heard a lot of teachings and teachers, and then they they just create more structures in their mind that become reified, um, you know, reified ways of thinking that really get in the way. So this curiosity is really important. Mm. Non-attacks an interesting one. I could have called that compassion, but I I decided to call it non-attack for a very specific reason. Is one of the things that I've noticed, both in my own journey and working with other people, that one of the things that happens after a big spiritual awakening is, you see, the, the ego worships familiarity more than anything else. And so there's this dimension of our ego, you know, that psychologists call the superego. And I like to think of it a bit like a condom over our ego structure. It's the membrane. <laughs> And its job is to hold your ego together, right? And to shrink it back into, you know, and it uses judgment and punishment and good, bad, right, wrong, you know, um, to do that. So Ramana Maharshi actually spoke about this dimension of our ego, and he called it the thief dressed as the policeman here to guard the treasure. So if you think about that for a moment, it's an interesting one. A wonderful metaphor. It's actually a thief, but it's coming in the guise, in the tone of, I'm here for your own good, but you're actually getting ripped off. So what I tend to happen is that when people kind of start stretching out beyond their known ego structure, usually what comes up is these negative put-downs that really feel like the criticism that you heard as a child from your parents or your school or your teachers or wherever you heard it that we interjected and has become a part of our ego structure and it's you start usually putting down others or themselves both but typically yourself first hmm. there's usually a lot of thoughts of attack and judgment and criticism commonly the things I hear people feel I feel I'm a fuck up feel I'm no good I'm stupid um, that kind of stuff. And it, it basically has the effect of contracting your mind and your consciousness, putting it back in its place. So it's extremely important to see this for what it is, to see this as inner attack, and to learn how to disengage from it, just to see it for what it is and not give it any energy. As if you're literally peeling back that condom and saying, thank you for sharing. So would you say that the ego has a sort of a innate tendency to try to retain and even um, yes. aggrandize its its own status? And so yes. it, when its status begins to be threatened or jeopardized by a big awakening, it rises to the challenge and tries to shut it down again. Yeah, it's like Star Wars, you know, the ego strikes back because the ego is trying to keep the familiar all the time, right. trying to reestablish itself, trying to maintain its own existence. And there are places within our ego where there's a lot of aggression, such as, you know, what I'm talking about now, the superego, there's a lot of aggression in it. This actually shows up a lot as depression. This is a major cause of depression in people. So it's something that I work on a great deal is really helping people to, to see how their own superego works how to disengage for it, there's various practices and teachings on that, so that they can create a very compassionate and kind atmosphere towards their own humanity. And this is so important. So many people, even deep spiritual practitioners that I find, 
can be so unkind to themselves and so harsh on themselves, especially when they find themselves falling short of their spiritual ideals. You know, when deeper levels of the ego come up that seem, you know, more primitive or things that you thought you dealt with are arising again. And there's the shame and the self-judgment about the fact that that's happening. To just let that run, the shame and the self-judgment, is very negative and unkind. So it's, it's extremely important that we learn how to work with our ego in a way that isn't aggressive, doesn't layer aggression upon aggression. Because really we see that the ego is actually just a call for love. What we're really dealing with is a very disconnected sense of self that feels very frail, scared, all alone, and thinks I have to do everything myself. Believes that, honestly believes that. And then goes about trying to do everything itself, trying to get enlightened by itself, trying to fix itself, trying to, and it's just, it's impossible. You it's mentioned the word thief a little while ago, There's, and, and we've talked about the Gita here, there's some verses in the Gita about how the appropriation of the sense of the actor is actually mm -hmm. a form of thievery, you know, because that which we take to be the actor isn't really the one doing the action, and if we take it that way, then we're, we're no better than a thief, in a sense. Exactly, but you see, we need to see the action of that thief with kindness, with right. compassion, as if to say, oh, sweetheart, relax, you're not the one who even can get enlightened, you're not supposed to do anything, be nothing, do nothing, get nothing, become nothing, seek for nothing, relinquish nothing, be as you are, rest in God. Do you think that in a perfected, enlightened state, if we want to just, you know, get generous with the feel, with what's possible, that there's still going to be a, a kind of a kernel of ego which is necessary in order to function as a human being? Mm -hmm. It's just that on the average, such people are rare, and so in almost every case, there's a, a lot more ego structure than there ideally or ultimately will be if the person is is fully enlightened. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, I think that for as long as there's a body, there's a certain level of ego that's just there. It's part of the human animal, if you like. I mean, it's still mysterious to me. I don't proclaim to have all the answers by any means. But what I do know is that it's really not about trying to not have an ego, because I don't know whether that's possible. I think it's about just letting our ego become more transparent and more refined. Mm -hmm. And so these structures that have, like for example, our bodies have these animal instincts in them, like the desire for self-preservation and for sexuality and for survival and for socialization. I mean, those are inbuilt structures that animals have too. And you can see that a lot of the more primitive aspects of our ego are really coming out of these instincts that are inherent with having a body and you know and having a physical vehicle and so we have to work with them and, and they have to get more refined and come more into harmony with the deeper impulse of our soul with what our heart really wants and loves and values above all else but I don't think it's necessary to try to suppress or um, in ways that have been done formally sexuality and self-preservation, but more to understand and work with these instincts that are just part of being a human being mm. and to be real about them. So what I seem to see is that with souls that I've met who seem to be very awake, 
the body and the voice and the mind, it kind of falls into place more as a vehicle. So it's not necessarily negative. And this is something that A Course in Miracles says. It says that everything that the ego has created when it's been given over to the Holy Spirit or God for a different purpose can become a vehicle of communication. Yeah, the reason I bring up the question is just that there are some teachers who emphasize this egolessness thing to such an extent, you know, they just keep hammering again and again on the idea that there's no one here and there's no one there and there, it's just isness. But I don't know if that's ever actually anyone's experience ultimately, so I'm, I'm afraid it yeah. must confuse people to a certain extent. I think it does confuse yeah. people because it's really a confusion of levels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. On, on the level of what's called ultimate reality, that's, that's true. true. There's sure. no one here, there's no thing, there's no one, there's no body, we're all one. There is only the is, or God, or however you want to call it. And yet, on the level of the relative, which comes out of the absolute, um, there's differentiation, there's bodies, there's minds, there's voices. You and I are having a conversation. Your body is in Iowa, my body's in California. But to me, the true non-duality, if non-dual really means not two, then it also means that the relative you know, particularity of existence, your body, my body, your voice, my voice, etc., and the absolute, the inseparable unity of everything is not two. And so where does the particularity, the individual, where does that come from? It comes from the one. But it doesn't mean that the particularity isn't relevant. You yeah, see. you know that verse in the Gita, or not in the Gita, in the, in the Vedas, Purnamada, Purnamidam, Purnamudachate, and it goes on and on, but it, you know, this is full, that is full, taking fullness from fullness, fullness right. remains. So all this diversity is really, it's a fullness in and of itself contained within the greater fullness, which contains both, both absolute and relative. Yeah, and I think that it's a real disservice to people because one of the classic problems that appears with what I call neo-non-dual teachings is that it's not understood or unpacked very well that you know the relative aspect of our human life is also part of the totality and therefore it's worthy of our attention as well. Right. So to me I think that can lead to ways of relating to our human experience that isn't very compassionate, that ultimately I don't think serves, which is a big part of why I make non-attack and compassion, so that we learn to work with our relative human experience and our ego knots and difficulties in a way that genuinely serves, to let them become transparent, to let things integrate, and to also appreciate the preciousness of our individual soul and its unfolding process and the mystery of that, which leads on to humility again, in, in that there's so much more for us to learn and to discover and our egos do tend to be inflated and arrogant only because they're frightened. So how to work with that in a real way, how to work with our limitations and to turn the things that we find in our ordinary human life I wrote that article on humility at a time when I was in really intense crippling back pain with a serious spinal injury. I'm doing a lot better now, I'm grateful to say, but Good what I learned... I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, how your back I'm, doing, is. I'm doing a lot better, yeah. I'm skiing and oh, good. I'm able to do everything that I love to do, mm -hmm. but I had to go through a passage there of really facing the possibility that this might just be how it is for the rest of my life. and 
if that is how it is, could I accept it? And it was a really important juncture because the ego is always trying to bargain to get what it thinks, you know, what it wants and what it thinks should be happening. And my ego is no different than anyone else's in that regard. And of course, when we're vulnerable and hurting, whether it's physical hurt or emotional hurt or psychological hurt or financial hurt or whatever, it's very difficult to open and surrender. But that's the practice open, soften, and allow reality to unfold us w with whatever is happening. So I, I, I practiced with intense back pain and with those junctures where my ego really wanted to fix and change it and just get rid of the pain and not that there's anything wrong with getting treatments that might help our situation but it's more the mental grip that we can get into that causes the unnecessary suffering and um, for me there's there's something there's, that we, Richard Raw said it beautifully, he said that we grow spiritually the most through both great love and also great suffering. Mm. And if we learn to work with those things, both the extraordinary beauty of our life and the difficulties, then we're grown. And uh, what I learned in my journey um, was, was the importance of humility and learning to welcome I do not know what anything is for. So I practiced that when my back was intensely painful 24-7 and I couldn't get out of pain for quite a while. And I don't know what this back pain is for. Help me open to it. It was beautiful, potent and powerful. Yeah, again, if it's a beneficent universe, then although it may be hard to understand sometimes, yeah, everything is for a reason. And not to just Pollyanna it, you know, because right. we can say that as a platitude, mm -hmm actually isn't the same thing as genuinely letting the virtue of trust in synthesis with the virtue of humility open us into life, open us into the mystery. So that then brings us to the willingness, which is just the sincerity of what is it that we truly want, what our true will is, and the place of our choice in the matter. And I think that we... We're so used to here in the West going after what we want and thinking that that's the right way. But when we look at what it is that we truly want, I know for myself, you know, working with such an issue is intense back pain. And what I truly want is to be at peace. What I truly want is to be able to, to live in grace with whatever is happening. That's my true commitment. And each of us, with whatever circumstances and karma we have, we need to harness that with as much grace as we can. And there's an element of personal choice, true will in that. Not trying to exert my will egoically and direct the outcome, but being sincerely willing for something deeper than just personal desire. And then the patience to not try to control things, which is such a hard one, the patience to really be with the fact that, you know, I love what the Zen masters said, that enlightenment is a divine accident, but spiritual practice makes one more accident prone. You know, the truth of the matter is that each of us can engage a path and a, a spiritual practice. And if we're genuine about waking up, we do need a path. We do need a practice. Meditation or prayer or inquiry or devotion need to find a path and a practice that is appropriate for us as 
workable for us, that we can engage in our life, that's suitable for our soul's development, and we need to engage it. But there's no guarantee of what's going to happen. I get some comments from people. I got one just the other day, actually, on YouTube, uh, that I'm kind of a fool for emphasizing the value of practice, as you have just done. So maybe we're both fools. But um, I, I think the notion that makes people anti-practice and has actually been voiced by some well-known teachers is that somehow a practice can reinforce the sense of a practicer and therefore be counterproductive. Could you speak to that for a moment? Sure. That's true, it can. It depends entirely on how we're practicing. So big part of what I'm encouraging people in terms of their practice, firstly, if we're genuinely to practice presence, or inquiry, it's not the same thing as, we're not, I'm not saying be still and think you are God. That was not the teaching that any of the great sages gave. Right. And I think so often we can think that we're engaging with a spiritual invitation, but it, we're really just engaging on a conceptual level. Yeah. It's not the same as... Here, here. I mean, I, I, I run into so many people who, who are just kind of conceptualizing non-duality or something and they think that that's that's what it's all about but it's, it's not what it's all about that's a great a excuse yeah, it's like reading a restaurant menu and thinking you're getting nourished or something right exactly and so all of the great spiritual teachings have encouraged us to go within there's not a spiritual tradition in the world that has not emphasized the importance and the place of spiritual practice, of meditation, of prayer, of devotion, and of the need to come back, to have something that helps us to come, to stop, to relax, to disengage from, you know, the very slippery tendencies to the ego. And not only that, but the whole world is oriented on, you know, worldly frameworks, egoic frameworks. And so just being a person in the world, there's a very real need to quieten the surface activity and to give yourself intervals where you come back to pure being. So it's really about what methodology of practice you engage if you're talking about non-dual experience or non-dual awakening. So the, the, the meditation teaching that I give is firstly methods of concentration. I teach different methods of concentration just because most people that I encounter are so caught up in their mind, their nervous systems are so agitated, they don't know how to go within, not in a real way. So firstly, there's a need to just concentrate one's energy and then we shift the point of concentration from concentrating on something to just being. So when you say concentration, are you implying an effortful sort of practice? Because that would sort of there's that would a, seem to be a, a degree of effort, mm -hmm. a focus on the breath, or a focus on the heart, or focus on the belly. There's different approaches. So a gentle so, effort. Gentle effort. It's not an effort to get to a particular result. It's just a gentle effort to bring about more focus, to shift the point of because really, the effort that we are exerting anyway, egoically, is an effort that says, I'm a separate someone, I have my thoughts and opinions about reality, even about the spiritual path. There's no dropping in that. It's conceptual. There's actually so, a verse in the Vedas someplace which says, be easy to us with gentle effort. Exactly. Yeah. Very beautiful. And then we shift that gentle effort 
from focus on the breath or focus on the belly or focus on the heart to just being, to just letting ourselves be, mm-hmm. to just being here, just resting in God. No need to do anything, fix anything, get anything. But yet I instruct people in the beginning of that practice, when they find their mind starting to crank up or get busy or go into thinking, just to bring yourself back to the point of concentration. Yeah. Right? Very simple. I suppose a mantra would be a similar Mantra also. I teach a lot of mantras. I've actually just produced a mantra album called The Heart of Being, and um, it's some of the mantras that we always do um, when I'm offering retreats and these are things that my students love to work with. It's just helpful as you're going about your daily business to actually work with the mantra. It's a way of not only you know staying in touch with the more subtle dimensions of your being throughout activity, but it's also a way of remembering that you are the latest in a long line of souls who have been feeling this impetus to remember and to wake up throughout time. And it's intelligent to, as you chant, to remember, for example, if you're chanting Om Namah Shivaya, that there are billions of souls who've felt that yearning that you're feeling right now and who've chanted that. It's very beautiful when we open to receive that support. There's some people that I know who seem to have had a profound realization and a very abiding one. They feel that there's practices just no longer relevant or appropriate or even possible for them. You know, if they sit to meditate, nothing happens because they're already there. Can you relate to that idea? I mean, is that your experience or could you envision it becoming your experience? My experience is that there's a more consistent, what I would call abiding in presence. So it's never not there that the grace and the depth and the knowingness and my experience is it's never not there. Only it's very beautiful to sit for longer periods and to just give full attention to that abiding and nothing else. What happens when you sleep? When I sleep. (laughs) Well, the reason I ask is some people say that that presence or that that pure awareness remains as clear and as awake during the depth of sleep as it is any other time. Well, my experience is I don't really know. Okay. I don't really know. I don't experience it not there. Mm-hmm. I don't experience anything coming and going. Right. It's more just that sometimes that there's other things that are taking my attention as well. It's not that the the presence is never not here. It how about always... um, how about perception? How, do you feel as you ski down the ski slope or walk down the sidewalk or whatever you're doing? Is there a sort of a, a different, altogether different quality of perception than you used to have? It's more dimensional and more refined. Subtle, yeah. Yeah, more dimensional mm. is what, how I would describe it. So I, I see things and I know things without having to go about it in the ordinary way. Mm. And things just come to you. Yeah, oh, all the time. Yeah. There's, it's just like, Oh, this is this, and um, there's a degree of effortlessness that wasn't there before, and fearlessness that wasn't there before. So much more freedom, as a sense the Ramana awakening, and obviously, you know that that's something that 
has taken a lot of time, many years to integrate and land and stabilize and it still continues. And there have been other awakenings since then too that are continuing to unfold. I get to just see more. Do you have, do you have a, the time to mention one or two? Gosh, I don't know where I'd begin with that. <laughs> well, let me ask you a more general question. Yeah, you know, there's more experiences where I've been in backpacking. or I tend to kind of get access to these kinds of things usually when I just take time off. Mm -hmm. And I love to go with my um, husband into the wilderness and just spend a week there and we don't see anyone else and it's very beautiful because there's no interference at all. There's just no ego interference whatsoever. So last time I was up there in June there was such a, a nectar-like quality to my experience. It was, and there was no inner and no outer and no him and no I and no water and no body but yet there was such a deep fullness so that's what's happening more in the last year. There's a very round, full, nectar-like quality to my awareness that's profoundly joyful. And I'm seeing, in a way, like all the deities uh, that we've seen in all the great traditions you've mentioned, the Bhagavad Gita, so I'll speak a bit about the deities. I, I'm experiencing them as inseparable from my own true nature. and aspects of them coming alive and synthesizing with other aspects. So that's what I mean when I say becoming more dimensional. So classically we might think that say the Sarasvati aspect is very different than the Lakshmi aspect that's very different from the Kali aspect, but my experiences of, of those aspects that reflect dimensions of enlightened consciousness that are also very particular and experiencing a lot more about the the particularity um, within the unity, within my own being, that are within a soul. Do you Becoming experience uh, subtle beings like that, even eyes open, walking around, like in the supermarket? Would you be yes. seeing some subtle beings kind of in the atmosphere doing things or whatever? Or is it more of an inward meditative kind of thing where you would cognize them? Both. I mean, I think of Tara and, you know, Shiva as inseparable, as real as you and I are real. They're really dimensions to me of true nature that are existing in the subtle realms that are present like you and I are. So, yeah, yeah I see and feel the effect. It's most strong when I'm working with people. Mm -hmm. The reason I find this interesting is that I just feel like as we evolve as a culture, there will come to be a more and more nuanced understanding of the range of possibilities. And yeah. as it is now, sometimes it's fairly simplistic, I think, in terms of what's really possible. And when you mention subtle beings, angels, or things like that, people think you're just getting all woo-woo. But, you know, there are people around who experience this stuff routinely, and it's actually part of the structure of reality. And I think rather than dismiss it as woo-woo, we could perhaps see it as a, a vision of possibilities or that we all might grow into over time. Yeah, I I think that's a it's a whole other conversation that we could have some other time, Rick. Mm -hmm. But yeah, in essence, I agree with you. There's uh, one question that someone wanted me to ask you because they knew I was going to be interviewing you. They they said I would love to know who Miranda sat with subsequent to her opening in Tiruvannamalai. What teachers? Okay, well I said this earlier. I sat in my twenties with Sister Eileen McKins, who's a 
um, she was both a Catholic nun and a Zen master. This was so, after the cave? Oh no, bef oh, so you're after before. So I sat with, um, after the cave, I sat with two women in particular. The one that had the strongest impact on me was Shiva Shakti Amma, beautiful, beautiful um, being who's still alive in a body, giving darshan in Tiruvannamalai. And I experienced her as like the presence of Ramana, but in the feminine. Mm -hmm. Just beautiful. She works mostly in silence and um, through presence. And um, I sat with her on countless occasions and for extended periods of time. And so grateful for what I've received with her. I also sat with uh, another extraordinary being called Om Amma, um, not for very long. She was extraordinary. I don't know where she's based now. Uh, at the time that I was there, she was in Tiruvannamalai, and she didn't speak either. And she was an ecstatic feminine mystic who was, um, who I think really helped me a great deal to release a lot of the stress that was in my nervous system that really needed to move through. And then when I came to California and really needed help to integrate all that I'd been through, I sat with Lama Paldendroma, extraordinary woman who's here in the Bay Area, runs something called the Sukha City Foundation. And then more recently in the last few years, I sat with Hamid Almas and Jean Hay, who I work with privately to help with my continued integration process. Jean Hay is who I go to privately for that nice, kind nice. of work. Yeah. I'm, I think I'm almost scheduled to interview um, Hamid pretty soon. I, I don't know about Jean Hay. I'll have to look her up. Well, Jean um, Hay is one of the senior Diamond Heart teachers. Oh, with um, Hamid. Yeah. I see. Yeah. yeah. So I wasn't aware. You have a wonderful time interviewing Hamid. He's an extraordinary. Yeah, extraordinary. I've seen him at the Science Non-Duality Conference. He's, yeah. he's great. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. Uh, I know that I have a whole list of things we could talk about, but I know you, you don't have an unlimited amount of time. So we'll, we'll do another one in a year or two, if you like, and uh, perhaps that. go into some other areas that we haven't discussed today. So anything in conclusion that you, you want to say? I would just encourage you know, people who are listening to this to, to really work with their own awakening journey in a way that is holistic and that's kind to take seriously what you and I have discussed today about the role of practice in the awakening process. It's not that practice is necessarily going to guarantee you the result you might want, but it is part of the humbling, surrendering process that is necessary for a genuine spiritual practice and to know that you're not alone, that there's love and support on the journey and that I really hope that what we've shared and discussed today um, is felt by you as some words of, of love and support for your journey from one friend on the path to another. Beautiful. When you were reading that list of points, the thought that kept coming to my mind is that all of this builds a foundation and you, and you need a really strong foundation because awakening in its full value can be immense. My teacher, uh, Marsha Mahesh Yogi, former teacher, at uh, one time he said, you know, out of mercy, God wouldn't contact you uh, in your current state. He said it would be, he couldn't even telephone from a distance, you'd be crushed. Mm -hmm. He said you have exactly. to build a strong foundation for a realization right. of that nature. Right, so that's why with my students, you know, we, we spend time building that foundation through those virtues, cultivating those virtues, seeing where we are with those virtues, 
looking at the practices that can support them so that then we can start doing the deeper dive into what you think you are and through that into what you really are that sounds, oh, how wonderful, but what you meet along the way is so profound and surrender is what it's all about. Great. Thanks, Miranda. Let me make a few Thank concluding you. remarks. Your website is MirandaMcPherson.com? That's correct. Okay, and it's spelled M-A-C-Pherson.com, and I'll be linking to it from BatGap.com. Mm -hmm. Have you written any books? I've written a book called Boundless Love, and it was published under my former name, Miranda Holden. Okay. My new book, which will be called Tasting Grace, should be out in the next year. Alrighty. Is your book on Amazon? It is, yeah. Okay, good. I'll link to it from your page on, on BatGap. You're mentioning all your students and your people you talk to. You do this by Skype primarily or in person? No, or both? I, have a, I have a private practice in my home in Mill Valley, California, mm -hmm. and I have two ongoing sanghas, one in Marin County, one in Sonoma County, both in California. Mm -hmm. And then I teach at various centers in the world. I teach at Esalen. I teach at Kripalu. I teach, you know, wherever there's a, a genuine body of people that, you know, want to get together and come. And I also teach in London, in Ireland, in Scotland, and in Holland. And I go there twice a year. And so most of the people who work with me become students, learn this method, and journey together. And I imagine there's a schedule on your website of where Very. you're going to be and all that, and a mailing That's list people can get on and so on, right? Yeah, the mailing list also is a good one because I send out newsletters that aren't just promotional this is what's going on. I always send out some content, so that's where I publish new articles. And um, there's a lot more videos coming down the chute too, teaching yeah. videos and things. So, yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. Let me just make some general concluding remarks to those who have been listening or watching. This has been an interview with Miranda McPherson, part of an ongoing series of interviews. There are well over 200 now, and they're all archived at batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. There's a YouTube channel and there's an audio podcast on iTunes that I link to from each page on BatGap. There also you'll find a forum where discussions crop up around each interview. Each interviewee has their own page in the forum. There's a donate button, which I appreciate people clicking on. And BatGap is now a 501c3 nonprofit organization, which has relevance for U.S. citizens. There's a place to sign up to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted, and a few other odds and ends. If you poke around in the menus, you'll find things. Incidentally, I just want to say, apparently you can't see all the posts in the discussion forum until you register. So if you go there and you don't see anything, it doesn't mean there isn't anything there. You have to just click the, the registration button, go through that process, and then you'll see all the discussion that's been taking place. I'm going to try to fix that so you can see them whether you register or not, but so far we haven't been able to. So thanks for listening or watching. Thank you again, Miranda. You're welcome. And Thank we'll, you. And we'll we'll talk again one of these days and we'll see you all next week.